Tell you what, open your Bibles to uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation. We're in the holiday season, and the holiday season in many of our homes is a time of extra baking. It's the baking season. All kinds of uh, wonderful desserts come out of the oven with, uh, with a greater regularity at this time of year, and people uh, exchange and share uh, sweets and treats with others, and uh, Come January, of course, we have to make a resolution about, you know, dealing with the, uh, the results of the abundance of our bounty. But as I, I think about cooking and I think about a, a cake, for example, a, a particular Christmas cake, perhaps, there's the recognition that there are a number of ingredients that go into that cake, right? I mean, there's flour and there's sugar and eggs and milk and butter and baking soda and, and vanilla I mean, all of these things go into the cake, chocolate cake. Of course, you've got to put, you know, cocoa powder or something in there. And, and in order to bake that cake, and, and each and every one of those ingredients is necessary in order to, to get that delicious holiday cake. You just can't leave things out. I mean, you can cheap out and try to, you know, get away with not using butter and put some kind of artificial man-made something in there. But listen, I can tell the difference. So, so uh, yeah, don't cheap out. You know, put butter in your cookies. So anyway, you know what I'm saying? I mean, right? At least at Christmas. So why do I say that other than I like to eat? Well, I I say that because it sort of serves as an illustration of what we have been doing here these last weeks as we have been talking about reasons for the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. We're baking a cake. And we have been adding the ingredients. And, and some of the ingredients, uh, you know, seem to be perhaps more important than other ingredients. But every ingredient is important. And if we left out some of these ingredients, then the cake wouldn't, you know, wouldn't come out right. So here we are this morning, and we are finishing this section. And when we finish this section, we are finished with prophecy for, for a considerable period of time, Lord willing. But we've arrived at the tenth reason. The tenth reason this morning why we believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Okay, we have, we have gone through reasons one through nine. We have arrived here this morning at the tenth reason. And the tenth reason is simply this. We believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because of the promise of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Because of the promise of Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. Now, you don't have to turn there just yet. I mean, if you are, that's fine. We'll get there, I promise you. But let's get, a, let's get a running start at it, okay? The book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. When the Apostle John completed this book, written under inspiration of the Word of God, the very inerrant Word of God, sometime around the year A.D. 96, a book that he wrote at the explicit instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. He put down his pen, and with it had been completed all that God wanted his people to know out through and including the end of the age. It is the story, it is the completion of the story. We have everything we need. It has been given to us in the very word of God. And so at the end, it says we do not add and do not take away from this book. This is the complete story. The book of Revelation yields itself to a very simple outline. There are many outlines possible, I suppose. But there is a simple outline that is here in the text. has been noticed for, for generations Centuries, and it's in verse 19 of chapter 1. I just pointed out to you. It breaks the book down into three segments. Jesus says to John, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Past, present, future, it is the outline of the book. And that's generally how it breaks down. The book itself was written and, uh, with the purpose of being sent to seven historic churches. Seven historic churches located in western Turkey and arranged in a, in a somewhat circular fashion. 
so that the, that the book could circulate among these seven churches. I have a map that shows these churches for you here in western Turkey called Asia Minor in the Bible. And these seven churches are located approximately 30 to 50 miles apart. And the, the, the book says, send it to these seven churches, and it, and it designates the order in which it is to be sent. And the order into which it is to be sent is a, is a clockwise route beginning in Ephesus and then moving from there to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and so forth. So in a, in a circle, in a circle. It ends with the final, the seventh church, the church of Laodicea in the, the eastern portion. Why these cities? The answer, I think, is because these cities, I mean, they had churches in them, so certainly that's the first and primary reason. But beyond that, I think, is because these cities were, were contained postal distribution centers for the Roman postal system. Each city located, as I say, 30 to 50 miles apart from the prior one was the next stop on a distribution center on the Roman postal system. So it was the way mail flowed in that day. And thus it facilitated the distribution of this letter to all seven churches. Now what would happen? Well, the that church of Ephesus would get it, but before they would send it on, you've got to believe they'd make a copy of it. And then they would send it on, and the next would make a copy, and so forth. Now, each, in chapters 2 and 3, each of the seven churches has a, is a historic church. And, and, and Jesus addresses a particular issue within that church. And he writes to that church about a particular issue. But what he says to each individual church has, has application to the remaining six other churches. So it wasn't just for them. But what Jesus said was for them and then beyond them to the other six. So that all seven churches needed to hear the entire message of the book. The entire message. We see that uh, in the text, I think, most clearly, where it says repeatedly, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. To the churches. Let, this, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It indicates that the message, the individual message, is applicable to all the churches. Okay? So we get that circular fashion. The church that interests us this morning, in particular, is the church of Philadelphia. It's found over in chapter 3. begins in verse 7. The church located in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven cities here in the Apocalypse. It was founded in the second century BC. It was founded as a, as a missionary city designed to spread Greek culture and language into the ancient kingdoms of Lydia and Phrygia that were located on what's called the central plain of western Turkey. There's a plateau, a high plateau there. And so, uh, the church at Philadelphia, or excuse me, the city of Philadelphia was founded in order to move Greek culture and language up into that central plateau area. Religiously, the city of, of Philadelphia, from a Gentile point of view, in, imbibed in the worship of Dionysus, the goddess of wine. So they worshipped the Dionysius, and it was, it was very prevalent among the, the, congregate, the population in the city there, the pagan population. And uh, one of the reasons was the soil was really fertile, and, and uh, wine grapes just grew really, really well. There was a large Jewish population in Philadelphia, and this particular Jewish population was evidently very hostile to the fledgling Christian church that had formed there. Now, Jesus, writing to this church, evaluating this church as he does each of the seven churches, when he speaks to this church, contrary to most of the others, uh, one only, only one other exception, 
he has no criticism for this church at all, only, con, uh, only commendation. He only has something good to say about this little teeny church. And his commendation for this church derives from their faithfulness. They are a faithful little church. And from their faithfulness, they derive a pledge of deliverance from Christ himself. So we're not going to take the time to work through verses 7 through 13 uh, in particular, but instead, as we look at this for the purpose of why we're looking at this, I want to focus on really basically two verses. I want to look at verse 8 and verse 10 with you. Okay, I want to look at verse 8 and verse 10. And there are two features that stand out in verse 8 and verse 10. The first in verse 8, this is our outline for this morning. It's simply this. Verse 8 is a praise for their deeds. Verse 8 is a praise for their deeds. And secondly, verse 10 is a pledge of deliverance. So that's the outline. A praise of their deeds followed by a pledge of their deliverance. Okay? So take a look with me at verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, that you have put before Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have, not, and have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know your deeds, Jesus says. And as the NASB uh, renders it here in the second half of the verse, it says, because you have a little power. And I just want to make an adjustment here. I, I don't think that's the best translation there of, um, of the Greek preposition uh, hati, it could be translated that instead of because. And I believe the ESV actually does translate it as that, and I believe it's a better translation. And I think it should read like this. I know your deeds, behold, or, or excuse me, I know your deeds, and then jump ahead, that you have little power and have kept my word and not denied my name. Okay. I know your deeds, that you have little power, you have kept my word and not denied my name. That's your, that's your deeds. You kept my word, you didn't deny my name. This little church that Jesus says has little power, that's the idea of little influence, uh, numerically small, sort of insignificant, just an insignificant little, little congregation in the eyes, certainly, of their community. Jesus says that in contrast to their insignificant stature, he highly values their fidelity to Scripture. I know your deeds, that you have little power and have kept my word and not denied my name. Even though you are small... You have obeyed my word. You have, you have been able to endure. You have persevered in the face of pressure and particular pressure to deny Christ. Okay? That's the praise he gives them. He follows that praise in verse 10 with a pledge of deliverance. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So you see the praise, you see the pledge. The praise is because you have kept faithful to my word, although you are, you are small and insignificant, therefore I will deliver you. I pledge that I will deliver you. I promise, he says, to keep you from the hour of trial which is about to come upon the whole world. The hour of testing. So question, what is the purpose of this testing? And in what sense is the testing worldwide? Look again at it. I will keep you from the hour of testing. So, so what is the purpose of this testing? And this testing is about to come on the whole world. So in what sense is this testing going to be worldwide? That's a question. Actually, a two-part question that I want to look at with you. Now, the word testing here, perazo, in the New Testament has essentially two basic meanings. 
Okay? The word testing, the Greek word parazo behind the translated testing, has basically two meanings. One meaning is that, that it, and it means to try or to test people in order to determine or to demonstrate or to expose what kind of people they are. It's used that way in chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus says there, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test, there it is, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. Okay? You test them and you reveal, you expose, you determine, you demonstrate who they really are. They're false apostles. Okay? So that's one use there of the, of the, of the word perazo. It's the idea of demonstrating what, what's the inner character. The other use is to, to tempt or entice someone to evil or sin. So it can, testing can have that meaning or temptation. Sometimes it's translated temptation. It could have that meaning. That is to, to try to entice somebody into sin. It's used that way in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I won't turn you there, but, but there you remember it says that God does not, perazo, does not tempt anyone to evil. Right? So it's the same word. So it can mean an enticement to evil, or it can mean a, a demonstration or exposure of the kind of person being tested. Here in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, the use of perazo, where he says, uh, I will keep you from the hour of testing. The testing here he is speaking of, the hour of testing, was an hour that is designed to demonstrate or expose or determine the people being tested. Okay, so its purpose is not an enticement to sin, but an exposure of the kind of people. This testing will be literally worldwide. The whole inhabited earth. Everyone who dwells upon the earth. You see it? Upon the whole world. To test, to expose, to, to demonstrate those who dwell on the earth. Interesting expression here. Those who dwell upon the earth. It's used ten other times in Revelation. And every other place it's used, and I would say includes here, it speaks of people who are hostile to God. Wherever else that expression is used, those who dwell upon the earth, it speaks of those who are hostile to God. In the interest of time here, I'm not going to chase them all down with you, but for example, in chapter 6 and verse 10, says, they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, you will refrain from the judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. That is, those who have martyred us. And maybe we'll chase a couple. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an angel flying in mid-heaven, sounding with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Uh, 11.10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. This is the two witnesses who have now been killed. And they will send gifts to one another because the two prophets prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. You can trace them all down. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 12. Chapter 13, verse 14, used twice there. Chapter 17, verse 2. Chapter 17, verse 8. I know that's really fast. Get the notes. But you can trace it down on your own. It always refers, in the book of Revelation, those who dwell upon the earth, it refers to those who are hostile to God. It refers to those who are hostile to God. This indicates that the purpose of the worldwide testing is to make visible the inner character of the earth's inhabitants who are, um, you know, are hostile to God. It's to make it known. It's to make it plain. Whether they be Jewish or Gentile. Whether they be Jewish or Gentile. For example, uh, Revelation chapter 16, verse 11 By the way, someone asked me here the other week, I think it was, they said, you know, when all of this stuff's pouring out upon the earth, why don't they just repent and, uh, tr- and trust Christ? And I, 
The answer is, it's because of the blindness of unbelief. But you can see it here. Um, I mean, the fifth, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their, plain, their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. You know, why didn't the Egyptians repent in the face of the plagues, you know, that Moses brought upon them? Because it's the hardness of unbelief. Okay? So, in Revelation 3.10, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That is, the hour that, that is designed to determine, to expose, to reveal the character of those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth, the whole earth, at this time, is evil. Is evil. Now, the church at Philadelphia does not need to have their inner character demonstrated, right? Because why? Verse 8, Jesus says, I already know your inner character. I know that you have little power, but yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. You have revealed who you are in the face of serious opposition. So, you are exempt from the testing. That's what he says to them. You are exempt. You don't need your character revealed. Your character has already been revealed by your fidelity to me and my word in the midst of difficulties. Because I know your deeds and I know that you're faithful, I have kept you from the hour. Now, question, what is the hour of testing that Jesus is speaking about here? Notice the definite article, the hour. I will keep you from the hour. That indicates to us there was a particular hour in view. Not any old hour, a particular hour. The hour. Not merely a general time period. Not a time just of personal stress for the church here in Philadelphia. But a special hour. An hour that is familiar to everyone who would receive this letter. The hour. Well, in, in light of the Old Testament scriptures, which you know, was the, the, the basis of much of the revelation that they had, what would be the hour that would be coming upon the whole world? Well, anyone who had read Daniel 9 would know what hour he's talking about. He would be talking about Daniel's 70th week, right? Or if he was in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, he'd be talking about the time of Jacob's trouble. Or if he was in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, they'd be talking about a time of distress. Or if they were reading Joel chapter 2 and verse 31, they were talking about the day of the Lord. Or if they were, you know, had Matthew 24 and verse 21, it would be the great tribulation. And certainly if they were to finish reading the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, it would be pretty clear what hour he is talking about as it is laid out for them in the things to come. Okay, So, the hour of testing, the hour that was to them yet future, and beloved, I would suggest, is still future to us. Now, question. Does this promise of protection mean that Christ will preserve them while they are present during the hour of testing? Or that he will remove them from the time period of testing. Okay? Question. He says that I will uh, keep you from the hour of testing that is coming upon the whole world. The hour. Right? The tribulation. Does it mean he will preserve them while they are present in it? Or does it mean he will remove them from the time period represented. I will keep the verb tereso, the word keep. It means to keep. It means to protect. It means to uh, preserve. Okay? In the sense of uh, like watchful care. Watchful care. So the promise to, that Christ is making to this church is some mode of, of protection or preservation during the upcoming crisis. There's going to be some way that he is going to protect them or preserve them during the upcoming crisis. 
And the, and the promise of this deliverance is based on the fact that they have already passed their test, right? Verse, chapter 10, beginning of the verse, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, because you have persevered, because you have passed your test. I will keep you from, Greek preposition ek. It means um, out of. It means away from. So Jesus is indicating here that the the promise of deliverance, the promise of being kept, the promise of being preserved is a promise that involves movement away from the hour of testing rather than protection through the hour of testing. Okay? It's in the preposition ek. Now, if if Jesus was communicating to them or wanting to communicate to them the idea that that they were going to be shielded while living within this hour, within this time period, there are different Greek prepositions that he could have used. He could have used the preposition en, which means in. I will keep you in the hour of testing. He could have used the preposition dia. I will keep you through the hour of testing. But he doesn't do that. He uses the preposition ek. I will keep you out of or away from the hour of testing. Okay? So you have this, this verb preposition combination here. Tereso ek. I keep from. Okay? I keep from. Now that grammatical occurrence has one other place in the New Testament where it's, where it's uh, available to us to sort of try to gather what it is that he's saying. And uh, interestingly, it is from the pen of John. And it is in John chapter 17 and verse 15. So I'll go ahead and turn you over there to John chapter 17 and verse 15. There is so ek. John 17, verse 15. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, right? This is the night in which he is betrayed. This is the night he'll be arrested. He is praying to the Father on behalf of the eleven and beyond even to us. But here, in in particular, he's praying on behalf of the eleven. And he says, verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. To keep them from the evil one. So in in this passage, Jesus does not ask for his disciples to be kept from the presence of the evil one. Instead, he asks the Father to keep them from the power of the evil one while they're still living in the world, right? He's not praying God, you know, he's not praying take them out of the world. He's saying keep them from the power of Satan here in this world. Why? Well, because he's about to be crucified and they're going to be left, you know, strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. So he is, he is praying here using this grammatical formulation, that they would be kept safe from the power of, the, of Satan while they are still in the world. So based on that, there are many who conclude that the pledge in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, you can go back there, with the same formulation, is a, is a commitment by Christ to the church at Philadelphia to keep them safe during the coming hour of testing rather than remove them before it comes. Now, wait a minute. I, I thought that Revelation 3.10 was the support that he was going to remove them before the hour of testing. And now it sounds like, according to John 17 and verse 15, that, you know, understanding it there, taking it back here to Revelation 3.10, that I'm now all of a sudden arguing that Christ is going to protect his church during the, revel- during the tribulation. And it sounds like kind of a persuasive argument for that, isn't it? But that's where we would be wrong. That would be where we are wrong. Because... There is a a contextual difference between Revelation 3.10 and John 17.15. Listen, a a foundational principle of Bible interpretation. Grammar is very important, but context is the most important. Right? You've heard, what's the three most important things in buying a house? Right? Location, location, location. The three most important things in interpreting the scriptures are context, context, context. 
Context always rules. And so the argument here is, on its surface, very persuasive. But it is not definitive. Because the context of Revelation 3.10 will overcome and offset the grammatical uh, similarity between John 17.15 and Revelation 3.10. So let me show you. In John 17, the passage deals with preservation from the power of a person. Right? Keep out or keep away from the clutches of Satan. That's what Jesus is praying for. Father, keep my disciples away or out of the clutches of Satan. In Revelation 3.10, the emphasis is instead on deliverance from a period of time, the hour. One is of a person, keep me safe from a person. The other is keep me safe from an hour. Okay? The hour in which a trial exists, not just the trial itself. Keep them from the hour of the trial. Listen, the only way to keep people from an entire period of time is to prevent them from entering it. The only way to keep them out of, away from, a period of time is to keep them from entering that period of time. And that's what Jesus is promising in Revelation 3.10. Now, some would say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why can't uh, the promise of being kept from the hour uh, be likened to God protecting Israel when they were in Goshen when the ten plagues were falling on Egypt? You remember that, right? The plagues fell on Egypt, but they were protected in the land of Goshen. And on the surface, that sounds kind of persuasive, except for one problem. When Israel was in Goshen, they were physically, distinctly, geographically separated from the Egyptians. Right? You remember what it says? The Egyptians loathe shepherds. And so they were walled off in their own land. And so when the plagues fell, the Bible is very clear to say they fell on Egypt, not on Goshen. The land of Goshen itself was exempt. The problem here uh, for Christians is that they are and we are interspersed throughout the world. There is no one little enclave that could be somehow shielded over. We are, we are salted through society. And the judgments to follow, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 19, fall upon the entire world. There is no little pocket of land that is exempt from these judgments. So I don't think it's a good comparison. Even on the surface, though it sounds kind of good, I don't think it's, I think it's an apples and oranges comparison. Okay? So they are promised by Jesus to be kept away from, to be kept out of a period of time. The hour of testing. Now, and the hour of testing, we've said, of course, is, is the time of the tribulation. The time of the tribulation. So now a question that arises is, how does this promise apply to the church at Philadelphia? They're all dead. What good is the promise? I will keep you. Because you have kept, I will keep. I will keep you from the tribulation period that is, that is coming upon the whole world to reveal the evil character of the world. But well, wait a minute, they're all dead, so what kind of promise is that? It's a very good promise. It's an exceedingly good promise. It's a, it's a promise to cling to. It's a promise to, to stabilize your soul. It's a promise to, to help you anchor your faith. By implication here, take a look at verse 7, or 11 rather. By implication, the, the deliverance that he's talking about uh, will coincide with the return of Christ. I am coming quickly, he says. So the deliverance that he's speaking of here coincides with the return of Christ. So here's how this promise works. Okay, You've got to think with me on this. The promise is this. If Jesus had returned during their lifetime, they would have been delivered by a pre-tribulational rapture. They would, have, they would have gone up with the return of Christ for his church, and they would have missed this terrible time that is coming as it is outlined in chapters 6 through 19. But since he didn't return and they all died, they are still delivered from the time. Because when he returns, the first will be the dead in Christ who will do what? 
Who will rise when? First. So he will come. And when he comes, and this is the doctrine of eminency. Remember I told you, it's, eminency is that he could return at any moment. But just, be, you know, just because he doesn't means that, doesn't mean that he can't. And so he says to them, listen, you have a very firm promise. I'm coming quickly. And when I come, I'm going to deliver you from the tribulation. Okay, I'm going to cling to that. I'm going to live by that. I'm going to persevere in the faith on that promise. And, uh, and if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I'm going to die hanging on to that promise. And when, I, and, and when Christ does return, I'm going to be the first to rise and greet him and be with him. And so the promise is still good. The promise is still good. Okay? It was good to them. It is beyond good to them. It is good to all the other churches. Okay, so question, in what way is the promise relevant to any other church besides Philadelphia? How do I broaden this out? How do I, how do I uh, look at this and say, well, okay, that was well for these people who lived, you know, 1,900 years ago, but, you know, how does that apply to me? How does that apply to any other church? Well, here it is. I want you to see with me, and I'll turn back to chapter 2. I want you to see with me what the Spirit says. Verse 7, chapter 2, to the angel, the church at Ephesus. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. To the church at Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. To the church at Thyatira, in chapter 2, verses 25 and following. He says, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. And I also have received authority from my father. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. The church at Sardis, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. To the church at Philadelphia. Chapter 12, or chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He who overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, that a church at Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, he who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Seven times he says, this is written to the churches. And seven times he says, to him who overcomes, these promises are true. To him who overcomes. So, who is the overcomer? Well, John helps us. He doesn't leave us hanging. So, in 1 John, chapter 5. According to John, in 1 John chapter 5, beginning of verse 4, he tells us who the overcomers are. He writes, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who are the overcomers? To him who overcomes. Who are the overcomers? The overcomers are Christians. It is the Christian who is the overcomer. So John is speaking here in these seven letters to seven churches that are applicable to all seven churches and by extension to all churches that have ever existed from Pentecost forward, a promise of deliverance to the overcomers. Listen, the book of Revelation was written to benefit the churches, right? They have historical churches, seven of them. And it was to benefit all seven of those. But they they were to get it, Read it, copy it, pass it on, keep it moving. The book of Revelation is like a story with two alternate endings. Have you ever seen those children's books? Where you have a children's book and you're reading along and you come to a decision point in the book as, a, as the reader. And you can choose one, uh, one de- you make one decision or you make another. And the outcome, you know, if you make this decision, it says turn ahead to page 57 and then pick up the story again. And it, and it gives you a different outcome, right? And if you make, the deci- you make the other decision, turn to page 36 and pick up the story and it has a different outcome. The book of Revelation is like that. The book of Revelation is like that. It is written for the churches and it lays out two alternate endings. Two alternatives. One is wrath. Beginning first in chapters 6 through 19 in the, in the terrible wrath of the day of the Lord, followed by the eternal wrath in the lake of fire. The other ending is deliverance from the wrath of God, both the temporal wrath during the, the day of the Lord and the eternal wrath in the lake of fire. Instead, you go to be with the Lord in his kingdom when he returns for a thousand years. You are part of his great and glorious kingdom. And then you follow and proceed ahead into the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. So there's two endings. Right? Depending how an individual and a church, right? So you hear uh, the, um, the, uh, um, the church at Laodicea is a good illustration of this, where he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So the idea here is, you know, two, uh, listen, listen up, two alternate endings. Two alternate endings. If you are an overcomer, this is your ending. If you are not an overcomer, you have a different ending. So respond to the message. It is written to the churches. It is written to individuals because churches are nothing but collections of individuals. Right? It's not written to a building. It's written to a group of people. So it's written to us. It is written by extension to us. We are part of this. And what Jesus is saying is that there are two alternate endings to each and every one of us. One ending is, if you hang on to me and my word, I will deliver you from the hour of testing the great tribulation that is to come upon the whole earth. The tribulation that is outlined in the things which are to come. Back to to chapter 1 and verse 19, right? Where he speaks of uh, chapter 6 through 19 and the terrible time of the seals and the, and the uh, uh, trumpets and the bowls. I will deliver you from all of that. If you do not persevere with me, if you do not remain true and faithful to me, then you will go through this terrible time, which will end ultimately in the lake of fire. And it's available to you. It's available to you this morning. You're, as you sit there, I mean, it's like it's in front of us. It's in front of you. Will you cling to Christ? Will you flee to Christ and then cling to Christ? Will you find in Christ everything for life and, 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 and the pursuit of, of godliness? Will you, will you trust in Christ for the, for the deliverance of your soul? Will you reject all 
uh, worldly pretenders. And in the face of persecution, will you hang on to Christ? If that is true, then you are an overcomer. And the overcomer will receive the invitation into the kingdom of Messiah. But if you want nothing to do with Jesus, if you've taken Jesus in some superficial way as, as a, a fire insurance policy that you think you can just you know, buy and put in the closet and I'm good till the end, you know, at the end, then there's another ending for you and it is not pretty. It is terrifying. It is terrifying. So who will you have? The book brings us to that point. Who will we have? For those who are overcomers, for those who have chosen, chosen Christ, they will be kept from the hour. Beloved, they are kept from the hour by being kept out of the hour. Jesus is going to come. No one knows, no man knows the, the time, but he is coming to receive his church to himself. And it could be today. It could be today. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, if it were today, if it were now, if the shout were to come, the trumpet were to sound, right? And the dead in Christ were to rise first, and then we who are alive and remain were to be transformed. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. When all around you, the people are changed, what will happen to you? Are you still going to be sitting there? Are you going to still be sitting there? And say, where'd they all go? Probably appropriate, as we close out the study here of prophecy, and we've been at it for months now, right? Matthew chapters 24 and 25, remember that? That was like earlier in the year. And then 10 reasons for the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. We've been doing that for, for a while. We're done. Notice what Jesus says here to the church in Philadelphia. He says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem. Which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. May God open our hearts and minds to hear what the Spirit says to this church. Let's pray. Father, we have labored away these many months trying as best we can to understand what you have recorded for us. What Jesus said what he meant by what he said, how it fit with what others before him have said and, and apostles who came after him said. To compare scripture with scripture. To try to be approved workmen, not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And our Father, we are not so arrogant to assert that we have got it all right and there's nothing more we could learn but our Father, it sure seems that, that the message that we have repeatedly seen is that there is a terrible, terrible time coming upon this earth when the character of its inhabitants will be revealed, when the rebellion breaks into the wide open, when your ancient people, Israel, are hard-pressed and up against it and facing certain extermination. When the church of Jesus Christ has been removed to be with their Savior. When Christ will return to crush his enemies and to establish his millennial kingdom. And our Father, we so long 
for this event. Everything within our hearts desires to see the end of the age. When righteousness prevails, when peace abounds, when sickness and sorrow and pain are banished, when men and women and boys and girls can, can live and fulfill the purpose of their creation, when we can worship unhindered, when faith can be sight. And here we are, the end of this year, 2015. What a year it's been. Our Father, we were shocked just a week ago, a little over a week ago. Oh Lord, it's easy to become frightened. It's easily easy to become unnerved. Father, may you just renew in us a strength, a rock-settled conviction that Jesus is still on his throne. He is still reigning and ruling. He is still coming. It may be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years. There's something within us, O Lord, that senses it's probably not going to be long. May you find us worthy. May you help us to be about the right things. May your word banish fear. May we utilize opportunities to proclaim the the transformational message, the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. And may we, with the saints of old, as the very book of Revelation itself ends, May we be able to say with a whole heart, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.